And what's interesting here in this icon from the Orthodox tradition, you see a bunch of angels uh, about the crucifix and capturing the blood and water as an image of the Eucharist. That's not what John's talking about. In fact, John doesn't have a Eucharist in his gospel. In fact, the only place he talks about the Last Supper and uh, the idea of sharing of bread and the morsel of bread, it's only given to Judas, and Judas betrays him. It's not in remembrance of me. It's a very different... The authors here have a very different theological point to get across. And so... This image of his side being pierced is not prefiguring the Eucharist, not for John. It is something else. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Johannite Church. Gooden earned a PhD in religious studies from McGill University in the philosophy of religion with a secondary area of concentration in patristic theology. Currently, he's a lecturer for the McGill School of Religious Studies in Montreal, Canada, professor associate at the University of Laval, Institute de Theology Orthodoxe de Montreal, and an instructor for the Pappas Patristic Institute at the Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Gooden is originally from Miami, Florida, and now currently resides and teaches in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you uh, here this morning, Dr. Gooden, and take it away. Thank you, Julie. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, a few words of preface uh, before I officially begin. I guess the first one is, on the slide you'll see my email address. Perhaps you would like my slideshow afterwards? or the paper from which this was derived. I'm happy to share that. And if you can't quite see it on the screen, you can always get it from me after the presentation during the break. Um, how I put together this presentation, I want to make a few comments about that. I guess the first rule of presenting is know your audience. I don't know you and you don't know me. So I had to make some assumptions about how to aim today's lecture. What's the expectations of the audience, but who are, uh, who are they, what are their backgrounds, and some conversations with John about this. Hopefully I've come up with something that speaks to you. Uh, I hope that's true. Uh, the next word I want to mention is that in order to tell the story of the Divine Feminine in the Gospel of John, I have to go through uh, certain texts of the New Testament that don't act don't present the Gnostics in the most favorable light. I think this is not news to most people here, but I wanted to underscore that, that we're going to visit these texts. It might be discordant. And my way to counterbalance that is that certain questions arise in my research, and I'll actually aim them at my church, uh, the Orthodox Christian Church, because they don't have answers to these questions, but the Gnostic traditions do. And so therefore, it's more of an upper hand of you know, okay, what do we do with this image of the divine feminine? How does that reconcile with tradition? Uh, it's a much harder hurdle for the Orthodox to overcome. And so that's my way of balancing. I'm going to be talking about the Gnostics the way the New Testament does, but at the end, it's going to be turned on the Orthodox. And hopefully, the discussion opens up 
from my, this presentation. So, I'm dealing with the Gospel of John. And in Orthodox tradition, here you see an icon, and St. Pachorus. St. Pachorus is always pictured with the Apostle John, uh, pretty much serving as his scribe. This is an acknowledgement within the Orthodox tradition that the things that we call the Joannine Corpus, the letters, the Gospel, and the Book of Revelation, all ascribed to John, he's not the sole author. So even Orthodox tradition acknowledges there's complexity. And of course, as an academic, I know the complexity runs much deeper. The authorship of the Joannine Corpus is exceedingly complex. The Gospel of John itself, um, academics acknowledge there's been at least three major edits, edits, revisions of that Gospel over several decades. In addition, we have the prologue and the epilogue that were added to the Gospel. It is an evolving document. It is a document that evolved with a very particular political and theological history behind it. And I'll have to get into that history, but those from a more Protestant background might be uncomfortable with, what do you mean there's more than one John? What do you mean there's more than one Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible? Uh, though I think today most of us are willing to accept that the evolution of this document is interesting and it's complex. And it came within a community, the Joannite community. And this dialogue emerged in concert with Gnostic questions. And that's why I want to explore. But to talk about the Gospel of John, I want to give a little bit of its prehistory of the reasons why. There's always a reason why a document is put to ink. And the reasons here go back. And here's where my very simple paper becomes unnecessarily complex because that's who I am. <laughs> The precedent for the Gospel of John really has something to do with what's called the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus. Ascribed to Paul, but not from Paul. And these epistles were written because of confusion arising, because everyone was interested in what was generally known as Gnostic speculation. You know, what about certain promises from the Hebrew Bible? And these epistles were written, and I'm going to get into that history, with the supposed authority of Paul in order to quash certain phenomena. One of that phenomenon was female leadership. And in response, the final edit of the Gospel of John appears, both embracing and carefully defining itself against what was happening in the early second century, and late first century of the Christian era. And in this dialogue, I believe, it's where my own research comes in, that the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch are part of this dialogue too, and I'll at least touch on this at the very end. And sort of a snapshot of where I'm going with this is that the Gospel of John presents a meditation, presents a reimagining, on the story of Genesis, that Eden presents a typology, which the Gospel of John will present the antitype, the fulfillment of this prophecy, and presents Christ and the Holy Spirit as antitype to Adam and Eve. Holy Spirit and Eve, that's where I'm going with the divine feminine. 
That's very explicitly, very literally, and very obviously, once you know what to look for, presenting the Holy Spirit as a new E, and very explicitly a feminine figure. And as way I see it, it's written as sort of a correction to the very drastic language that appears in the pastoral epistles, and that perhaps is a new opening to non-patriarchal possibilities within the church in general, and maybe even for orthodoxy, and that's kind of where I'm going for my direction, of course, in the Q&A period. You take it in any direction you see fit. So let's talk about the pastoral epistles that have been ascribed to Paul. And here, of course, I'm talking about the two letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. Not to churches, to individuals. And as I think many of you know, that these letters are problematic. Let me go here first. There's not, they have a general Pauline feel, but they're not from Paul. We know this. An author has a vocabulary they like to use. Your favorite authors just have a lexicon from which they draw. Not that a particular author can't use a new word from now, now and then, but 36% of the vocabularies that appears in the pastoral epistles are not found anywhere in Paul. Moreover, 20% of it, nowhere in the New Testament, in fact, they're very Hellenistic. Hellenistic means in conversation with the Greek philosophical traditions that the Gnostics were also using. This is a later artifact. There's a lot of artifact emerging when Gnosticism, not that we know a lot about first century or early second century Gnosticism, those records were destroyed by the church, but it appears this is the direction of the conversation. These letters were written uh, in response to those concerns of the early church about the people getting confused. Uh, one interesting little note here, that one of the academic theories by Harrison is that Paul had many scraps of paper left over in his prison cell, which had valuable things, bits of liturgy, bits of instruction, and these were preserved and they, how do we memorialize this? How do we preserve this? Well, they created artificial letters as if it was a whole organic piece from Paul and just fill in the blanks. The fragment hypothesis. Looking at the history of the early church, in case you were having troubles placing this, well, Jesus of Nazareth, very generally speaking, we can place that perhaps his ministry between the years 30 and 33. Afterwards, we have the early church, uh, Pentecost and 12 disciples, from about 33 AD to 65. Placing the death of Paul, early 60s, perhaps as late as 64, the pastoral epistles, though, date later. Maybe they have fragments from Pauline writings. Now, the very complex history, which I touched on with the Gospel of John, Three major edits, plus the epilogue and the prologue, and going by what we have, and you know, we found a fragment, the Ryland's fragment, trying to date that. It could have been as late as 115 AD. I like to think of that because, to be honest, it, re it really matches up with one of my hypotheses that it touches on and it connects with Ignatius of Antioch, who also died in this time period. And we know he was visited by the bishop of Ephesus, the Joanite community. Onesimus, the bishop, had visited him. And it appears they're talking about the same things. 
And again, we're dealing with a part of scholarship here is where you only have compelling arguments. You don't have proof. You can only show similar language. It's a possibility. And then if you're going to the question of female leadership, a document that comes in much later in the 4th century AD, which really handcuffs the Orthodox Church, the Apostolic Constitutions. And I'll at least mention that a little later on. So why were the pastoral epistles created? Well, they're created for reasons. The reasons was to protect what was seen as the orthodox and true beliefs of the early church. And the threat here wasn't from Judaizers, of reverting back to Judaism, but of Gnostics. But they include much more. There's some valuable things within the pastoral epistles. The idea of teaching sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. And this is perhaps the fragments left over in Paul. And we'll see these sayings. This is a faithful saying. And then the letter will say something. It's a little chance to teach, a little nugget of something that needs to be preserved, and the church did as well. And it also goes to links to establish qualifications for ecclesial office. What does it take to be a deacon? What does it take to be a bishop? What's qualified there? And this wasn't a concern for Paul. Paul was convinced Christ, he would see Christ. It was going to happen in his lifetime. It's only when he was in prison that it suddenly come to him, he might not survive establishing a church as a religion, you know, with institutions that would continue into the definite future was not on his horizon. It was, this is obviously not Paul. So these letters are difficult to work with because you got Paul and you have someone else putting words in Paul's mouth. Now here is the concern of what the church was struggling with, Gnosticism. And here's that harsh language for those Gnostics in the room. So, I hear gritting your teeth is bad, according to your dentist, so try not to do that too much as I read this out. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions out of what is falsely called knowledge, gnosis. By oppressing it, some have strayed away from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And another warning in 2 Timothy, but evil men and imposters, that's a harsh thing, imposters, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And what do we know about this gnosis, about this Gnosticism? There's actually a clue here in 1 Timothy. No other doctrine. So I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that I may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Genealogy is a word I highlighted there. I'm going to get to that in a second. Which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. And another from Titus here, avoid dissension. But, a full, but avoid foolish disputes. Genealogies, there's that word again, contentions and strivings about the laws, for they are unprofitable and useless. What is this talk about genealogy? We don't know because many of these records have been destroyed. What we have are later writings, usually by the opponents of the Gnostics. Here we have St. Irenaeus of Lyon, talking about a particular group of Gnostics, the Sethians. And there's a long passage here. I'll read parts of it. But the idea of genealogies is about begetting. You know, who begat whom? What emerged from what? But this begetting is much more in a metaphysical sense. What primal divine essences begetted 
other primal divine essences in a process of revelation. And you see here these ideas that there had to be a progenitor and then later emergences. And here in some of this language, you'll see the language of male and female appear. John will get into this too, but differently. But other again, pretentiously clear that there exists in the power of Bythus, a certain primordial primary life, less incorruptible and infinite. This is the father of all, and stylized the first man. They also maintain that his anointing, going forth from him, produced a son, and that this is the son of man, the second man. Below these again is the Holy Spirit, and under the superior spirit the elements were separated from each other, vis-a-vis the water, darkness, abyss, chaos, above, which declare the spirit was born, calling him the first woman. Afterwards, they maintain the first man and the son to light over the beauty of the spirit, that is, of the woman, shedding light upon her, beget by her an incorruptible light, the third male, whom they call Christ, the son of the first and second man and the Holy Spirit and the first woman. So this is genealogy. This is begetting. You had an origin, and then you had epiphanies, revelations of God in different forms, male and female. And this is what Irenaeus reports about a certain group of Gnostics called the Sethians. And I take this as, you know, perhaps what the person pretending to be Paul was worried about is all this idea of begetting and male and female. What is going on here? And so I want to take at least a moment to talk about Gnostics and women here. So, here's from the pastoral epistles, once again, the famous or infamous epistles. Here's a very noteworthy one, which I think has been misunderstood by many commentators here today. So, talking about the last days, of course, Paul thought he was within the last days. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and here's a whole list. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's an interesting thing here. Acknowledging that these opponents aren't completely away from faith. They have a form of godliness. There are things to respect and admire about the opponents for the pastoral epistles. But denying the fullness of the power, there is at least the impression from writers of the New Testament that Gnostics weren't quite getting everything. From such people, turn away. For the sort who are creeping into households and make captives of gullible women, women loaded down with sins, led away from various lusts, always learning but never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Always striving after knowledge, but never getting its fullness. Well, it sounds like us. <laughs> Very good orthodox response. <laughs> when you were going through the list, boasters, proud, blasphemers, I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's, That's my... Like, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the room. It's yeah, a chunk of list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, the most interesting part of this list and I think the part that is misconstrued by certain modern-day commentators about making captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. I think for many commentators, they say, oh, that must just be lust. Women are easily seducible. Not in my experience, but <laughs> perhaps for others, have better luck. 
But what are these sins? I don't think the sins are of lust. I think the sins here is pride. Is because Gnostics, the reason why the slaves were the Gnostics appealed to women. The Gnostics were offering women something new, something different, something promising than anything else in the ancient world was offered. And that is something other than the four professions that most women of history had, which was daughter, wife, mother, and widow. And the Gnostics seemed to have spoken to these women and led them away from the church. And we know, looking at least a little later of Gnostics, we know about the Montanists. They had female priests. And in fact, Montanists had two female priests, and they were like known as the three. They were, in fact, more famous than even himself at times. And they all spoke in ecstatic visions, urged their followers to fast and pray, all these good and Christian stuff, so they might receive revelations from the Holy Spirit. Now, a female priest is a position of respect and of authority. And it was uncommon to see this. And I think this really spoke of perhaps of a new social order that was promised or at least incipient in the idea of Gnosticism. And this tradition, in fact, goes back to even the daughters of Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21.9 were said to have a gift of prophecy. So it's part of the Christian tradition that women were not hated and despised. They were part of the church and not just as you have to bring your wife and kids to the church. There was something else happening here. And the Gnostics spoke to them. And so the pastoral epistles come into this dialogue. And here we see the most discordant part of the New Testament, at least in my reading, where dentist uh, admonitions aside, I do grit my teeth. And it's from 1 Timothy, and brace yourselves, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. A whole lot of misogyny wrapped up into this. And I'm going to go into a second of like how this could not be Paul. But it appears, reading this evidence and of course speculating, that Gnosticism appealed to women and were a threat to the church in the fact that voting with your feet, they were going elsewhere. Because women were presented with respect, with power, with authority, and even if we may speculate a little further, an early form of egalitarianism, maybe women's liberation, ideas that new social possibilities could exist. So what do we know about the true point? So let's just complete this thought. I'll at least talk about the true Paul in relationship uh, here in his epistle to the Romans. Why Paul wrote this letter was to make sure the Church of Rome was in line with the Orthodox faith. So he wrote his letter, the epistle to the Romans. And not only that, he sent a delegation. I'm going to seed your church with my people. A very political move. The delegation was led by a woman, a deaconess, Phoebe. And there's a very interesting word that appears in Romans 16. I commend now to you, Phoebe. That word commend doesn't say much in English. I recommend this person. This is a great person. Here's a noteworthy person, a person to be praised. It actually means something much stronger in Greek. It means establish. She was being assigned to the church in a position of leadership. I'm sending this letter, and I'm putting someone in charge, perhaps as a deacon. 
and at least in my reading, another conversation, I think Apollos was their bishop at this time. So Paul was sending a letter, he was sending an entire delegation, and he was standing someone to be assigned to a leadership role in that church. And in fact, 28 people were identified in chapter 16, 10 of which are women, and they're not identified as daughters, wife, or sister, but as workers in the world. So I at least submit to you that the true Paul would never have written this language of, you know, women be quiet, be silent, be submissive, and remember it's your fault we fell into transgression. That's not Paul. So now we are ready, with knowing this preceding history, to talk about the Gospel of John. So let me start here. I'm in italics, I'll have to read this out loud. There's a very powerful verse here that's very unexpected until you know the precedence in the Hebrew Bible that the author is drawn upon. What's actually being said here? I'm quoting John 7, 37 through 39. In the last day, the day of the great and the day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow water, flow rivers of living water. And parenthetically, but this he spake of the Holy Spirit, that they may believe on him and receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of the scripture said, out of his belly, coleus, shall flow Rivers of living water. Okay, that Greek word, koleos, is very interesting and unexpected. Almost every instant in the New Testament, koleos refers to a womb, a uterus. It technically means like koron, an empty space of creation. But there's one instance where Jesus talks about the belly as a koleos that, but in the context of it's not what eat, what you eat profanes you if you eat non-kosher. What goes into the belly is eaten and is eliminated, what comes out of the heart of a man. So if Jesus wanted to talk about the heart of the man is what makes a person, he would use cardia. But he used coleus here. And every instance in the New Testament, it means womb, hollow, uterus, not the adamant and genital. Now, this word of, where does in the scriptures it say, out of his uh, belly shall flow rivers of living water? The next two slides get into this. And here the mystery starts revealing itself. What is John doing here by putting these prophetic words in Jesus' mouth? So here we see another icon, another picture. Uh, Gospel of John is different. You have the familiar Gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, call the synoptics. They see history the same way. And then there's John. He does things in his own way. He's the only one to speak of Jesus' crucifixion and mention that Jesus was pierced by a spear in his side. But one of the soldiers pierced his side, and immediately blood and water came out. John loves the word water. Water has spiritual significance for John. But I want to note for you, or at least make note of yourself, out of my belly shall flow living water, rivers of living water, and here the water is released. Accident or not, 
I think it's not an accident. And what's interesting here in this icon from the Orthodox tradition, you see a bunch of angels uh, about the crucifix and capturing the blood and water as an image of the Eucharist. That's not what John's talking about. In fact, John doesn't have a Eucharist in his gospel. In fact, the only place he talks about the Last Supper and uh, the idea of sharing of bread and the morsel of bread, it's only given to Judas, and Judas betrays him. It's not in remembrance of me. It's a very different... The authors here have a very different theological point to get across. And so this image of his side being pierced is not prefiguring the Eucharist, not for John. It is something else. So let's dig into what this could mean using the scriptural evidence. Now, one of the most fascinating things about John is the probe, the Johannine probe. And it serves many purposes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's a very unexpected way to start the gospel. It's very much like a hymn, like a confession of faith, like a creed, something community we recite together. And that's how most scholars kind of understand this. This was, everyone's on the same page. What do we believe? And the prologue establishes a couple of things, one of which was one of the other threats to the faith in the early church was called docetism, that Christ was only an apparition. He only appeared in the flesh. But God can't suffer. God has to be impassable. So therefore, God, as Jesus, didn't have a body. Well, very clearly in Jonine prologue, we now confess as the Jonine church that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's one of the purposes that is happening here. And just sort of a side note, you see in the slide, a prologue and the epilogue have the same number of syllables in Greek. No one knows why. Perhaps if you're looking for a dissertation to do, you can explore that. Now, I get a little footnote. Much of my research here comes from Von Waldi, you know, if you want to look this sum up. Up itself. But more things are happening in the prologue than just that. <clears throat> All the Gospels share the trait of trying to weave the emergent Christian identity into the Hebrew tradition. Type and antitype. What was prophesied in the Hebrew Bible? What is fulfilled in Christ? And so here it says this, and here we see it's a bunch of proofs about. Everything that was promised. John is dealing with upper text. Now, here's a very interesting Jewish text, which I'll read at least a little part of. But the question is, from a Jewish perspective, who is being spoken of here? And I'm reading from Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. Interesting. This is a meditation, obviously, on the book of Genesis. It's about creation. That before anything was created, the Lord possessed me. And this me is everlasting, eternal, just like God. A little plurality in the idea of God, even in the Hebrew tradition. And as I think as many of you know, the who's been written about here, if you look at the beginning of this proverb, is wisdom. Hokmah in Hebrew 
or in Greek, Sophia. Feminine, very clearly feminine, at least as far as the noun declension. But we'll see that maybe that's not just an accident of grammar. There's more of a feminine presence here. This is also being meditated upon by the author of the Jonah Prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Proverbs 8, 22 and 23. An audience would have recognized that prologue as referencing Proverbs, as being very similar, but now putting Christ as the Word of God into this role as wisdom, Com you know, conflating or merging this identity, both of which are meditations on the book of Genesis. And the Jonah author wants to weave as proof of type and anti-type, that we are talking about the same thing. You're looking for the Word of God and the wisdom of God. You can find it with Christ. So the Jonah Prologue talks about a pre-existence Word of God, the Logos, is an apparent reference to problems. And very, you know, compare this in your own notes, in your own looking afterwards, to John 1, verse 3. <clears throat> and there's also a link here from the Hebrew Bible, the wisdom of Solomon. What's the identity? Here we have this new player on the stage, Chokmah and Sophia, wisdom. Who is this new entity, this being in the Hebrew Bible? Hebrew Bible identifies this with the Holy Spirit. And here's another verse. Who has learned your counsel unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on, from on high? And thus the paths of those on earth were set right, and people were taught what pleases you, and were saved, saved by wisdom, Sophia, in the Septuagint version here. So in the imagination of the late first century, the idea of wisdom and of salvation and Holy Spirit is all tied to the idea of Proverbs, and where does Christ fit into this, I surmise and speculate, is what the Joannine authors are working Now, more particularly about from his belly are living waters that will flow like a river. Here are the actual allusions, following von, von Walding here, who's identified this first. Now, Proverbs 18, verse 4, the words of the mouth are deep waters, but the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream and rivers of waters. The heart of the discerning acquired knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. Another, in other words, from the wisdom of Sirach, those who eat of me will hunger no more, for those who drink of me, wisdom, will thirst no more. So that I offer to you is what is being talked about here in John 7. And that last day of the feast, and that last day, day of the great feast, Jesus stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth me, the scripture hath said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, that that they believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. That's what's happening here. So references to Proverbs, Proverbs, Wisdom of Sirach, these are new prophetic texts in the Jonine authors. And it all has to do with wisdom and Genesis and Proverbs. 
So here is where my talk finally, perhaps, to the relief of many, comes into focus and arrives at its point. What is happening here? Genesis is tight. Christ is antitype. That it appears the Joanine authors was seeing the story of Genesis and the fall of humanity as part of the Incarnation. That this is what Christ was attempting to fix, the relationship with God, bridging the alienation created from the fall caused by the first couple, Adam and Eve. And he did this by recapitulating humanity within himself as the totality of humanity, as Adam and as Eve. Now, it was very interesting here, if you know the Genesis story, and a feminist theologian, Phyllis Tribble, talked about this, it's very unusual to see that in Genesis' story that Adam gives birth to Eve. Sort of a very strange way of looking at procreation. That Eve emerged from the side of Jesus. And in fact, he kind of gives birth to, the side, to, to Eve from his own son. And what's interesting, this same word for side appears in the Septuagint as it is in the Gospel of John, that that may not be a coincidence, that this outpouring of living waters from the belly, from the womb, from this area of creation, this core, this region of possibility, from the literal side of Christ, there's a spear and outflows living waters from the glorified Christ, from the Christ in crucifixion, emerges in a very literal sense. Uh, if you know also the very famous passage from Philippians, from Paul, the true Paul, talks about the kenosis of Christ. Christ will pour himself out, having the form of a servant taken. And this idea of kenosis, does that just mean humility? The verb actually means to pour out, to pour out a drink. And it appears that John may be very literally showing a literal kenosis of the Holy Spirit pouring out of the side of Christ, being drawn by a spear. And this would then turn shows that as Eve emerged from the side of Adam, the Holy Spirit emerges from the side of the second Adam. And the Holy Spirit is a new Eve to teach us all things. And that appears to be what is happening here. Now, more clues and a little bit more complexity here. In Genesis, Eve is identified as a helper, which is not a very good word in English. What is a helper? That's an assistant, someone who runs around and does things for you, you know, cleans up the house, whatever. That's not what helper means in Hebrew. Helper is someone stronger than you. Otherwise, they can't give you help. In fact, the word helper in the Hebrew Bible usually means God. God is my helper. He's not an assistant. He's someone stronger. And of course, it's Gen and Genesis, it's helper comparable to. And perhaps the best translation is counterpart. That each have strengths, or at least in this ancient conception of uh, gender as male and female, that each are strong and each complement each other each constitute the image of God. Now, John 2 describes the Holy Spirit as a helper. He uses a different word, though. But we do see the same word in the Septuagint uh, is used um, um, in Hebrews. The author of the epistle of Hebrews uses the word from the Septuagint to describe God. So this idea here, 
John uses a different word, and that word is the paragraph, which is a very strange word. It technically means a lawyer, you know, which is not quite fitting that, don't worry, I'm going to send you a lawyer after I'm okay. <laughs> Thanks, I didn't know it was going to be that rough, but if I need a lawyer. But we know that John talks about the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all these things. And he just comes out of the verb form. No, it, from the here. It's not, I don't think, get too hung up on here. That the idea of teaching you all things is something very much set aside for the idea of wisdom from the Hebrew Bible. So this is very Trinitarian. You have the Word of God and you have the wisdom of God. And even the early church, Irenaeus, described a very beautiful image of the Trinity. The, Trin the two hands of the Trinity are the Word and the wisdom. They work together you know, for creation. And, you know, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. This is the idea of Gnosis. And I think this is what the first century and early second century Gnostics were about. What is this promise? That God will teach us all things. And that's where I think everyone's on the same page that then starts to depart. And this is where Ignatius of Antioch, and I'm checking the time here to make sure I don't use up anyone else's time, if this is a correct reading, what does this mean for us today, particularly for the Orthodox Christians? Is this an opening to an Orthodox gnosis of a feminine divine wisdom as the Holy Spirit and New Eve to teach us all things? And for the Orthodox Christians, bound as we are by tradition, the answer here is qualified. Now here is where I think Ignatius of Antioch, who appears to be contemporaneous, and we know that in his letters... Ephesus, he reports the bishop of Ephesus was there with him. And he talks about some very interesting things that have to do with divine revelation. And speaking now of his epistles to the Ephesians, Ignatius of Antioch, that Jesus claimed to be the mind of the Father, but he stipulated only the bishop had access to Christ in this special way, not everyone. And more was said, literally, that the bishop is in the mind of Christ and not the other way around. That the, the bishop does not possess the mind of Christ, this noetic reality of God, but just is in that, is participating. And in fact, experiences this participation within the mind of God in a unique way in silence. And is directed, the believer, hear his silence, and there's a Greek word I'll comment on in a second, so that you may be perfect too. So what is happening here? is yes. This promises to teach us all things is there. The bishop has a unique participation in this noetic reality of God, but is only in the mind of Christ, but is not possessing as an object of understanding. He's not reducing the idea of God to conceptual knowledge within the mind. Particularly in the Greek understanding, there's a difference between the noetic mind and the discursive logic, dianoia which is, I can use words, I can use logic, I can use demonstration, everything that's below the true reality of pure mind, which is experiential. So the highest levels of orthodoxy can experience God directly, and that could change the priest, but he doesn't get conceptual knowledge of this. And orthodoxy, that word for silence, hesychasia, will become the hesychastic traditions, the monks of inner stillness, prayer, meditation, thought exercises, in order to try to perceive with the noetic mind 
the uncreated glory and light of God in order to be transfigured. And out of that comes wisdom, but more as a phronetic reality as character and virtue, but not as new revelations of God taught me this new thing or this new other thing. That appears to be the path that Orthodox has taken, while um, at least in my perhaps not completely correct understanding of Gnostics, more ideas of revelation or understanding or conceptual knowledge of how to understand creation, they were more open to these possibilities, as documented by um, St. Arrhenius and others. So that's one question. The next question I have, putting the Orthodox Church in the hot seat, what about female leadership in the church? Where it's really clearly obvious the pastoral epistles were not from Paul, though they pretend to be from Paul, and the idea of forgery, that's pretty awkward. Well, they're still canonical, so the Orthodox Church doesn't appear to be budging this. And then there's something called the Apostolic Constitutions, which I'm going to talk to on the next slide, which even doubled down on the uh, pastoral epistles. But even if the Orthodox Church, which actually we're trying to do now, I attended a meeting in Romania on reestablishing the diaconate, uh, the female diaconate in the Orthodox Church and the leaders in this movement. And in this, there's the paragon of the ultimate saint of orthodoxy, Olympia the Deacons of the uh, early 5th century, who was mentored by Gregory Nazianzus, was the companion of John Chrysostom, and was the wealth and the power. She had money. Uh, she had power. And she exercised that in the world to achieve social justice. John Chrysostom did the liturgical aspect, but she built churches. She built monasteries. She was the power of the church to create social realities and make them real, and she defended John Chrysostom. And she's a great saint today. So it was the possibility of, can we imagine the diaconate for women in such a way? And the answer here is maybe, but I'll offer to you that the Orthodox Church is better than any other church in the world in one regard. And you're saying, what is that? <laughs> How dare you? We are better at, at attacking ourselves than anyone else. If you get Orthodox in the room, it gets vicious. Or Facebook blog groups, oh my God, everyone's anathema on you, and you're a heretic on this. And the idea of, can we bring in women into the church in an office that used to exist as the diaconate and empower them to do social justice, as Olympia did, is viewed with great suspicion that they think that this is an opening to something terrible that's not quite defined. And sadly, a lot of this authority to deny women anything in the church, other than a seat in a pew as long as you're quiet, comes from the apostolic constitutions, which is my idea of scholarship. I've never been angry before. As a scholar, I pick up a book, you know, write things, other things I don't agree with. I actually got angry when I read the apostolic constitutions because their outright line is pretending to be written by everyone you know in the New Testament, but no one ever heard of this until the 4th century. And the document itself is heretical because it denies personhood to the Holy Spirit. But it exists in order to say, we're going to pretend that it's written by the apostles in order for the church ecclesial structures can be exactly what we want. And it's blessed by Paul and everyone in the New Testament, therefore don't question us. And the language here is almost sickeningly insulting. I'll read just a little part of it. As a quote from the Apostolic Function. Wherefore we, the twelve apostles of the Lord, who are now together, give you 
in charge of those divine constitutions concerning every ecclesial form. There being present with us Paul, yeah, he too is thrown, yeah, he's here too, the chosen vessel, a fellow apostle, James the bishop, and the rest of the presbyter, and the seven deacons. In the first place, therefore, I, Peter, say that. Talking about doubling down on authority here. Everyone wrote this, but is not mentioned in any church document in the New Testament. They were never in the same room together, and they would not have been thinking about creating a church when they think Christ is coming back and in their natural lifetime. Saving Thomas to a reading would have been a bit of a challenge. Yes. <laughs> but for orthodoxy... Still true. But for orthodoxy, this has been a shackle hard to find. I think... Uh, the apostolic Joanite tradition here in this room is like, yeah, we've, we've uh, dealt with this issue. <laughs> We're doing better. But one last question before we open up for Q&A. I think I'm actually doing really well on time. I'm proud of myself for aiming correctly here. What about this idea of feminizing the Trinity? Because it very clearly, from the side of Christ on the cross, emerges living water. If you thirst, thirst no more, because the living waters are the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and give you salvation. This is the new Eve. If Eve, rather unfairly, going back to Phyllis Tribble, was part of the fall in, in uh, Eden, then Irenaeus actually uses this great word to describe Eve, uh, at least Mary in the New Testament, as an advocate, this paraclete. For that, this is fixing that. Another, a woman's going to come to fix it. That is the Holy Spirit. Is this an opening to idea of seeing feminine in the Trinity and orthodoxy? And here the answer is kind of maybe a little bit, but don't get carried away. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I can put that one word. It comes down to the great words by Paul. The real Paul, the true Paul. For those who have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female, for you are one in Christ. It's the idea of hierarchy, the realities of this world we live in, and social realities of this person's a slave, and I'm the man. Before God, you are all the same. It's all those who put on Christ achieve this unity. This is not a reality, you know, for you know, for those in Christ. And for the ideas of God, let's turn to Plato, which the church would do, Clement of Alexandria. Plato wrote that if you had an experience of God, it'd be impossible to put it down in words, because that's dianoia. That's not the noetic reality of God. And so, in finding words appropriate to the divine, I think in that sense... Holy Spirit as the new Eve to the second Adam, and the second Adam is New Testament. Where is the new Eve? And then you get awkward things of making his mother the new Eve, but that's actually the wife. And it's like, okay, that's, no, this isn't Game of Thrones, you can't have that. <laughs> so, you know, the, new, the Holy Spirit as the new Eve is a better scriptural fit to the second Adam. I think this is reality, but the true reality is, uh, at least for the Orthodox response, I think comes from Gregory of Nyssa is that to reduce God to conceptual knowledge that you can master or possess in your own mind is in a strange form of idolatry, is that God is not conceptual knowledge. God is an experience. And so don't get hung up on the words of male and female. The totality of Christ, 
from his womb will emerge this, is poetic type and antitype to that reality, but the reality of God is beyond anything that we know of from our reality. Not Jew nor Greek, not slave nor free, nor male and female. You know, we are in God's image. God is not in our image. So God is the totality of everything and possibility of male and female and everything in between, and the possibility of humanity and then more. That is the true reality of God. And if it helps us along the spiritual path to see the Holy Spirit as a new Eve, as I believe John very clearly does in his gospel, then I think that is those are words appropriate to the divine. And I think that's where the kind of possibility maybe for orthodoxy exists. But I'm sure the Gnostic traditions, I believe, would be much more open to that. So that is my presentation, and now it's time for Q&A. So thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, what, what is the definition of the word nucleus? Have you had it? Is it nucleus? Oh. Have you had the Greek word nucleus? Is it something about silence of the mind? Or something? Oh, uh, hesychast. Hesia. Oh. Hesia. We're talking about uh, with Ignatius of Antioch and how yes. he sees. Yeah, yes. Hesic. Uh, Hesia. Here is silence right down there. Yes. Yeah. Nucleus. Nucleus. It says it right there. In the oh no no, that's not that's not a new. That's a that's an ADA. Oh. oh, oh. That's a, that's an ADA at the start. So it's an ADA oh, with a rock right, right, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like an ADA, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm. I've always been intrigued. First of all. Thank you, because that was just uh, exceptional. I mean, it draws together so many wonderful threads. And I want to maybe weave one more mm -hmm. into this uh, that was referenced just a little bit. And I wonder if you've got some ideas on this. I've always been puzzled by the, the phraseology of the Son of Man. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's, that, that, that's never been something that mm -hmm. I've been able to sort of wrap my head around. And I think part of, it occurs to me in listening to you that part of the problem with that is, is this genealogy, is, mm -hmm. is that it is, there's a, a birth aspect there. Yes. So, I'm, I'm not sure I can formulate a precise question, so maybe I'll just sort of mm -hmm. lob it into your lap to, yes. you know, is there, is there something, something there about the Son of Man? There is at least... I mean, it's huyoto anthropo, and I'm sure my Greek pronunciation is not perfect there. But the man part is anthropo. That's humanity. Human. Yeah. So it's... It's not andros. It's, it's yeah. Kind of, so it's more a totality there. I mean, part of it is there's a reference to the book of Daniel that you'll see the son of man, mm -hmm. and that's what gets everyone so excited uh, during his trial. And it's also, at least... What I've speculated about, and I haven't quite tracked this down, but it seems kind of obvious that one of the names of God is I am. Mm -hmm. And I believe the idea of son of man is a way to avoid that phrasing. That who are you? Well, the son of man, this, rather than I am. And there is a, a couple places in the New Testament, I believe during his trial, where Jesus does use the phrase, I am, and it's part where everyone goes, okay, we've got to crucify them right now. Right, right, right. 
You don't use, say, I am God. And so I think part of the idea of son of man is a way to avoid uh, the blasphemy of accidentally saying that you are God. Mm -hmm. And someone like, but he does say that during his trial, at least in one of his gospels, I am. But I guess the first part of it is, well, you know, he, a biological being, I guess here's where I turn to Phyllis Trivet. I mean, and her, uh, the rhetoric of sexuality, a great feminist theologian, and she looks at the two creation accounts of Genesis, and Adam was created as an, an undifferentiated being. He was, just calls her, she calls him the earth creature. He was both male and female. In male and female, he was created, and later became bifurcated, and then his loneliness began. You know, his alienation from God that he had to find through community, through the other. So the fact that Jesus so, sounds was... Like, sounds like Aristophanes in Symposium. Yes. <laughs> so the fact that Jesus is male in the New Testament, I think, if I may use the word fluid here, you know, <laughs> Jesus has a womb here. Coleus is a very unusual Greek word there. And it's like the, the region of creation, this is the undifferentiated earth creature Phil Stribble was talking about. You know, Adam existed and then became two things. It became Adam and Eve. And Christ came down, was incarnated, and on the cross became the Holy Spirit and the Logos of God. And they always existed Trinitarian, but now they had a new revelation within creation. And so, you know, looking for the feminine here, you know, Christ had a womb there. Elias' womb. It's not talking about his stomach. It's not talking about his belly. It's not talking about his heart. You know, there are perfectly good words. In yes, there are perfectly great words in Greek. And heart is one. It's like, as plenty of meaning from the Hebrew Bible. You know, give you a new heart, do this. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and so it appears this is reimagining this undifferentiated humanity that exists in the heat in Eden, that with alienate that would eventually lead to alienation from God. But now the Holy Spirit and Christ will lead you back to God as you put word and wisdom back into your life. You know, through you know, reading the word of God and through your prayerful life being frenetically inspired by the wisdom of God. And those two will guide you, you know, back to holy salvation. Thank you. Yes. Yes, John. Uh, first is uh, what every lecturer doesn't want to hear. Uh, I don't have a question why or a statement. Why, <laughs> haven't, why haven't you read my book? Yeah, why haven't you read my book? That's the other one. That's the other one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what well, was uh, the first one? Yeah, yeah. Not a question, but a statement. Uh, okay. But, but the statement is, uh, uh, in, in our um, church seminary, we often yes. refer to these lectures we use them as sources. Oh, great. Um, so I, I can already see that this will probably end up in a lot of seminaries papers. So, uh, <laughs> awesome. Very, you'll it's be cited. Good. Yeah. Yes. Um, the, the second. You had me over. I'll be cited. <laughs> 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 uh, it's a true academic there. Yeah. I have. Uh, I, I have two questions. Yes. One is, you know, the, the, now that we have this womb instead of belly, 
Yes. Like, they all, like if I read that in in John in English, all, all of a sudden it becomes much more obvious, right? Yes. Like the, the birth of the new Eve at the crucifixion. Yes. So so I'm wondering this woo-woo reading does it does it pop up in any English translations that you know of in the Orthodox tradition when you're reading this in Greek? Is it obvious that this is womb? That's my first question. Mm -hmm. My second question is, don't you have a book coming out? This will be going on YouTube, and I know that's a yes. topic. So. Oh, funny you should mention my book. But um, I have not seen. There's innumerable examples of translations of the New Testament that are very easily accessible online. Scholars' life is much more easier today. And I'm not seeing. There's, Greek is not an impoverished vocabulary. If belly or stomach, I mean, there's a, a Greek word that escapes me right now, you know, the, the insides of a person, there's a particular Greek word rich with meaning that is not used here. But no one translates this, you know, Kalias, there's one example of it being translated stomach. You know, it's not what profane, you can eat what you want, eliminate, that's not what's important. It's what comes out of a man's heart, a person's heart, that's important. That... Particularly theologians take the vocabulary of the New Testament as very intentional and deliberate, such as um, uh, kenosis. Mm. You know, it's like boom. Or the word logos, that word, word, <laughs> word logos, it's like God's gift to theologians. It's my personal theory, just sort of a brief aside. I think John was thinking that the word of God came down to Moses and became the Torah. But in Greek, the word logos means mind and reason and logic and all this stuff. And I think John was trying to say, the word of God came down to Moses, became the Torah. The word of God came down to us and became a human being. And it's just sort of a continuation of that revelation. But the word logos is not, it's not a violence or injustice to scriptures to see that as a noetic reality, as the reason, uh, the, the idea behind all the beauty of creation. And so that exists as well. And I guess toward the second question of, oh, geez, yes, I do have a book coming out. Um, my research interests um, are eclectic, perhaps eclectic to a fault, but I don't think so because I like to research this. There's, uh, I bring a very famous Lutheran theologian, Albert Schweitzer, into dialogue with the Orthodox East over the idea of apophatic wisdom of noetic wisdom, of being of a knowledge beyond rational understanding, which Albert Spicer explicitly does of how he grounds his faith. He was a scientist. And as a scientist and as a medical doctor, he had a hard time dealing with the idea of dead people come back to life. But he wanted to be Christian. And so how do you be scientifically minded and Christian faithful? Well, he put his faith into the ineffable mystery beyond the world into this apophatic reality of God, that you have a scientific understanding of the world, but beyond that, you have the Orthodox Fathers of the East, or the doctrine of knowing ignorance in the West. And that's where faith can exist in the possibility of the hope and promise of Christ, that God is love. Speaking of John, how about if we make that reality? And then Spicer says, if you need meals for the next 50 years in a rainforest taking care of lepers, <laughs> while Heidegger stayed in Germany, did very questionable things. It became more famous as a result. So my book gets into the idea of apophatic wisdom. So all you future seminarians wanting to research apophatic wisdom, 
There is an interesting book by David Goodman I want to check out. <laughs> I suddenly feel dirty for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's important that I check. Yes. Yeah, it's a gorgeous presentation. This, this, to echo what Bishop Will said, just, it, it pulls together so many threads. It's a really pleasing shape that you've made, and it's a, it's a delight mm -hmm. to be in it with you. It's actually the first time, uh, wonderful, great. Uh, it's usually, it slings and arrows, and why don't you cite me in your paper? When <laughs> I haven't presented this topic before, and so it's great. I'm Eventually, we'll work this into something I'll publish somewhere, somehow, so I'm uh, very happy at the warm reception I had here, so, or having here. But more people get to speak, and some of those things and errors are coming. Perhaps. The, the thing you've got me thinking a lot about, I, I guess, mm -hmm. is, the, is that notion, which I think is a very orthodox notion, of the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Um, and so there's this... Well, so he's baptized. Yes. Right, and the Holy Spirit, you know. So two things happen. One is that John pours water over his head, and the second is yes. that the Holy Spirit descends upon him, debatably pronouncing, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Yes. Um, it, it, it's not clear who says that line mm -hmm. in that particular phrase. Tradition often yes. has it as the father, but that's not actually stated. Um, I mean, if that, if that moment is in some way... Jesus' acquisition of the Holy Spirit because she comes down upon him. Yes. And this moment is the moment in which he gives over his spirit. And mm -hmm. the phrasing of that line yes. in John is it's often it's usually translated in English as he gives up his spirit, but the preposition is not clear, I think. It, mm -hmm. You could also say gives over. So there's there's two things, two things going on. The spirit is acquired and then given over yes. to the representatives of the community. Mm -hmm. So, as he foretold, a, a spirit will come for you, and then the spirit yes. is given. But in the sense of Jesus as a human exemplar of, of a spiritual path, yes. so there's, there's the ecclesiological kind of moment of that, mm -hmm. but then there's also, it seems to me, there's also kind of a, a mystical theology of it, that he's acquired the spirit, and then he empties himself yes. of the spirit, and goes to his father. Right, just yes. the, the deeper, those deeper phases of the spiritual journey of, of mm -hmm. giving up that, you know, there's the, the earlier moments of kind of like the, the radiance of, of encountering the yes. divine in silence, and then later moments of giving that up and entering into darkness. Well, well think about the last seven words. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, the last seven. The last seven words. I was going to say without the without without the logos hymn at the beginning as a as a you know as a as a prologue or perhaps a disclaimer, um, the combination of course with the water and the spirit at the beginning and the water and spirit at the end of course is also an argument for adoptionism and even yeah. Valentinianism, yeah. Valentinianism, right? Which is perhaps why they mm -hmm. stuck the uh, you know why you've got the logos hymn at the beginning to kind of head some of that stuff off. Yes. Yeah. And April Peconic uh, argues that the, the earlier rendition of the Gospel of John is adoptionist, and then the 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 uh, opening hymns put on there to to, to lower that. <laughs> I guess I, two quick com I mean exciting comment. Two things I'd like add, which wasn't in my presentation. Hopefully, I'll do it quickly because I know we're starting to run a little short on time. Um. The paper from which this is derived goes into more detail about uh, two other 
images in this. One is uh, Irenaeus of Lyon saying, why did Jesus have to be baptized? And it was the idea of this alienation between God and humanity took time to reconcile. That the Holy Spirit exists in Christian eyes throughout the Hebrew Bible, whispering in the ears, inspiring prophets, but Christ did something instrumental. He accustomed the Holy Spirit to indwell fallen flesh, and he was the most perfect human, so that began the process. The baptism was to introduce the Holy Spirit into human bodies. Now, Ignatius of Antioch speaks of living waters and seems to suggest that the crucifixion of Christ was part of the glorification of the Holy Spirit. It's like that was a necessary element. He used this idea of bubbling or blistering waters. And that was what Christ had to be crucified in order for that last part of the Holy Spirit to now baptize the world. It not only emerges from Christ, it baptizes the world, not just in... There's no Pentecost as such. Christ breathes in John. He breathes on the apostles later when he returns. But the world is baptized with the Holy Spirit. And though the most discordant point, it's like in cinema, it's actually The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson actually shows this to a very bizarre... It shows like the spear invaginating Christ's side and then like this gusher of water and blood comes out. And it's like, where did that water go? Baptized creation. It's the entire fallen world that's being reclaimed, not just humanity. So yeah, by the draft paper it wants derived from, if you're interested in like the where that's coming from, that's in there and I'm happy to share it with you. But so is it time to shut me up, John? Yeah, that's good. Uh, we're good. Yeah. Yes. Did you have a question? Oh, sorry. Um, I've been on a path that saw Mary Magdalene ascend to Eve. There's the Holy Spirit that stays mm-hmm. incarnate and reincarnate. So you derived. I didn't know if you'd come across that kind of notion before in your studies. Um, not exactly. It's uh, it definitely exists because Christian, very patriarchal Christian writers have to do something with all these women running around the Bible, that he reveals himself first to women, mm-hmm. and they go, and then some very bad church fathers say, they just did that because they knew women would be gossips, and here, oh dear Lord, I'm not write that. <laughs> <laughs> the word patriarchy does come up every once in a while, but um, she, I mean, there's definitely a rich traditional sort that she's just not an incidental person. Uh, she's just not, uh, she's not specifically identified with the repentant prostitute. She was a, a student, and the Greek word, you know, for student is usually translated as disciple. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's definitely part of the story as well. And uh, the seven women identified Paul, all the, the mirror bearers of, like, you know, it's a story of all of humanity, you know, not just... Uh, not just uh, the son of men. I was going to say that uh, got me thinking just for a second about almost a, a parallel or a kind of uh, physical counterpart, at least to the genealogies that um, Cranky Paul is complaining about, uh, in the sense that you've got uh, at least, you know, uh, putting an Orthodox hat on, though I'd, I'd be an imposter. It just, just got me thinking about essentially, you know, Christ coming forth from the Theotokos, 
mm-hmm. right? The Holy Spirit coming forth from Christ. So you've got this kind of parallel yes, uh, genealogy. material yes. genealogy yes. kind of, or uh, perhaps emanation, if I go mm-hmm. so far, um, as a kind of uh, counter to some of the pre-existent mm-hmm. ones, or the ones about pre-existence. Yes. Yeah. One last quick question. Yes. I know we're wrapping up. Um, of course, we already made the reference, but but the spirit infatuating Christ yes. is this is this a subconscious Freudian thing, or is the writer really like? Because it does seem obvious. Is 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 this is this <laughs> yeah. it's sort of hard to miss? Yeah, it's sort of hard yeah. to miss. This is what what the writer John really does mean. It. I mean, part of the idea of this paper, I went to the Basilica of Notre Dame here in Montreal, and there was the Catholics like, you know the crucifix with the, the Christ on that. And you look at the side, I mean, the technical word for a place where things go in the body, that's called an invagination. Mm-hmm. And you look at the wound in Christ's side, and it goes, you can't carve that without thinking about what this really means. Yeah. Christ is the entirety of humanity. He's male, beyond male and female. And the side, he's not pierced in the neck or somewhere else, that's where Eve emerged. And something emerges from there. I mean, this is very clear, at least in one of the editors of the Gospel of John. I mean, it's, it, I think this has not been identified before because the word for helper is paraclete. Rather, though the word helper for God is used by Paul elsewhere. It's a little bit more disguised. To me, it's really obvious once you're starting to struggle with that word coleus. That's not belly. So, it's, I think, been pretty much obvious to everyone, but it's kind of just hidden. It's like, I guess, I mentioned Phil's Tribble twice so far. It was a revelation for me about, as a young scholar, when I read that, how gender had blinded my own reading of Genesis. And then when I read her, it's like, this is what it actually says, that Eve, Adam gave birth to Eve, and it's depriving women of their reproductive power and authority even here and then it's like that's what's actually written and I think in many cases like in Isaiah there's a feminine hand that scholars identify there's a lot going on in the scriptures once you learn to see it for what it is and not just what you've been taught and expect to see yeah. there are two creation stories in you tell you know young earth creationists you know earth was created which Genesis creation story which <laughs> there are two there yeah it starts over. Just look at that line. It starts over in chapter 2. And it's like people become blind to what's right and parent in the face. And sometimes it takes fresh eyes to see it. Coleus is a word there that, yeah, that's not belly. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.